You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. ...and accept Christ if you're an unsaved person, and that today there'll be a turning point and the Holy Spirit will come and indwell you and begin to develop you as a believer towards spiritual maturity, and you can grow in that sanctification. That's all that basically means. Sanctification is growing spiritually, growing more holy as the time goes by. To be holy is to be set apart, is to be different than the rest of everyone else. And it comes, the growth, the spiritual growth comes through obedience to whatever the will of God is. He tells us what his will is. He gives us directives and how to be followers within his will so we get up each day we put on the whole armor of god and we seek to do the will of god in that day um, all that that entails entails loving the lord our god with all our heart soul mind and strength loving our neighbors ourselves, feeding the widow and the orphan caring for those the widow and orphan in their distress caring for the fatherless caring for the those in prison those in chains it says god gives us a number of things that are within his will that we can be doing every day and that will develop us in sanctification testing also develops you in that and last it's by the sprinkling of the blood of jesus christ that holds us in salvation and we'll see that in verse four where it says kept sorry verse five so let me read one through 13 again and i want to read it a number of times for us um, as we kind of develop this this thinking the more times we hear it the more times we read it the better developed it'll be in our thinking so we can gain the mind of christ and begin to develop spiritually in that Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the, uh, the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ whom having not seen you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. For this salvation, I'm sorry, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who promised of the grace that would come to you, prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first, if we could go back... And, and kind of think about this, if we went back to verse 2 and 3, the, to the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The foreknowledge of God, if we could touch on that for a second, I know it kind of ties back to the elect there, but the Father in heaven has had, has now or present maybe had in the past and has and has haves in the future a plan uh not just for you but for all of creation i i listened to a um and this creation involves himself and the messiah not, not to be confused i was listening to another pastor and a little girl asked him a question you know will there be animals in heaven he goes no honey i mean there's not gonna be animals there because that's just an earthly thing but if I went to Romans and Corinthians, we see that all of creation groans, wanting it to be like the initial creation in the garden. There's going to be animals in heaven. I don't know if your dog or cat was a sinful dog or cat, but a saved dog or cat is going to be in heaven, 
And there will be a new creation on the earth, a millennial reign of Christ, where there's going to be all kinds of animals. We can read about them in Isaiah and things like that. Um, of the lion lying down with the lamb and the wolf and the lamb together and the baby playing by the viper's hole and all that. There's going to be animals there. It appears that in the time that we're in now, we can only see creation as it is now. So we really struggle to understand how it was in the beginning when it was perfect, how it's going to be again in the future heavens, the millennial reign of Christ and all. It's going to be, it's difficult for us to see. We can only see what we can see. I see the people in front of me here. I can touch the people in front of me here. You can touch me, I can touch you. It's a physical, tangible thing. Tangible is like this. This is tangible. It's hard. And we can touch it and we can see that it feels firm and and we can touch a person, they feel soft. And, you know, we can touch hair and it feels like it feels, or clothing and it feels like it feels. We have, that's all we can relate to. We really struggle to relate to these things that are spiritual or um, it's almost, I don't want to use the word imaginative, but we have to use our imagination in a sense to kind of grasp what he's talking about, especially when we talk about things like sanctification, justification by faith, a future, a future holiness that's much greater than the things that exist today that we can't put our hand on. We look at a person, we say, oh, it's a good person. Mark over here is a good person. I look at him, I talk to him, I see him talk to him, he seems like a nice enough guy and seems like a good person. But I don't know his mind. Only Mark knows what's going on in his mind. I can't put my finger on it and take it out and say what he's really thinking or what he's really believing, even though the things that he says seems nice, you know. So these intangible things are hard for us to grasp. So when we look at intangible things in the Bible, spiritual things, things of God that are much greater in God's plan than we can grasp, we just have to take God's word in the Bible and know that he's telling us the truth. Men to the best of their ability, even that pastor, he's a good pastor. He's doing the best he can in the abundance of words there is sin. So the more you preach, the more things you're going to say that are incorrect at times. It's just inevitable. But as best he can, he's trying to shepherd his people and care for his flock and things like that. As best as he can with the knowledge that he has on this earth in this time. But what we're looking for is a living hope it talks about that's in the future. So don't get tied up in the things of today um, so much as looking forward to the future hope in the future. And the sin and the things that we do that are negative, we put those things behind us, Paul says, and we strive toward forward the upward call of Christ. So, there is a plan. God has a plan for you. He has a plan for eternity that's greater than we can fully understand now. We can talk about it, we can imagine it, but we can't fully understand it. Um, that being said, where's my plan in people? I know there's some women in here. I think Amanda's kind of a planner. She makes like the long plan and everything must fit in. No? Are you not a planner? Yeah. So uh, Tracy Bisbee was a big planner, man. These people with the plans. I'm not a planning person. I'm a take-it-as-it-goes kind of fella. And I think I learned that in the military where you just had to deal with the situation that was at hand, and then and it, when it changed, you had to deal with that situation. And then you just put out the biggest fire at the time. Not all fires, just the one that's the biggest and most dangerous. Look, and you deal with that fire, and then you deal with the next fire. Um, uh, that's a, this, these ladies, I mean, I, I commend you in a sense, this moment-by-moment -moment planning that you have where, you know, you get up at a certain time and do the whatever you do, the makeup and whatever, and then the exercise, and then to get the kids to school, and whatever order the order is, feeding, plant, meal planning, the work of the day, you know, whatever you have in your mind that your husband's supposed to accomplish that day, and so on. And as you, as you have this plan, everything's cool as long as everything fits into the plan. Where we get into trouble is when someone comes by, and either in your mind or by their lack of knowledge of your plan, they tend to thwart your plan, and then someone has to pay um, terribly for messing up the plan. But it turns out that this personality type is a type of personality, just so you know, Amanda, and others like you who are know that you're wrong right now. You know that this is a personality type and it's not all people think that way. And so where you get into conflict is where we're, we're all that way. We think because we think this way, you think that way. Um, because I think that, because I think that there's a certain way that things should be done in, an, in a, a way that, ask guys that work with me. They're, they'll always say, well, man, nobody can read your mind, man. It would be better if you just showed us what you want and then let us do it our way because I'll be like, no, no, do it like this. 
they're like, well, you didn't tell us to do it like this. You know, there's my way, and there's the way you're doing it. It's two different ways, but both will get us to the same conclusion. Well, even in knowing this about these planning people, um, a lot of times, here's, here I'll show you a weakness of them. They're so oriented to planning that there's very little flexibility specifically and specifically to hear the voice of God. They have a plan. We sit down, we read the Bible. We read the Bible for 15, 20, 30, 45 minutes, whatever the plan. Then we pray for 15, 20, 30, 40 minutes. And if the Lord hasn't answered in that period of time, he has nothing to say to me today, and I go about my day and do my thing. And that's where the plan falls apart, because that's not how God works. Uh, God doesn't work on man's agenda. He works on his own agenda. He works on his own time and his own thing. He says, come before me in the mornings and pray and, and seek my face and so on. But then it says, seek for me all the day. So all day long, meditate on you day and night. And the planner, you've got to fit into the little cube and the little slot and the little uh, diagram there. And if you don't fit there, including God, then um, a lot of times they struggle with uh, close relationships with, with the Lord in that because he doesn't fit into the plan. That said, the reason planners plan is because God's a planner. So God is a planner. He has a plan for every person he has a plan for his universe, for his creation. He has a plan for every uh, dictator, for every leader, world leader. He has a plan for every school teacher. He has a plan for every military person. He has a plan. And despite men's flaws, his plans are so much higher than men's, but yet he can use men regardless of the amount of flaws they have within themselves, the amount of flaws that they contain. He makes a way for his will to be accomplished despite men. Yet, he desires that men get involved in the plans that he has for men. You get that one? He's got a plan. He wants you to fit into the plan. The problem is, is that you're a, a, a fallen and sinful wretch, and yet he still has a place for you, designed and oriented for you to occupy and to be oriented within his plan. How's that? Clear as mud? You got me? Okay. So all you planning sinners out there, just know <laughs> there's a place for you in his plan. And his plan is greater than our plan. It's really shocking for us to understand that we have a part in the objective of God's plan that lasts from the time we pass through today. We need to grasp it. Because a lot of times we're over here trying to do our own plan and not trying to fit in the And that's what the problem is. He has a plan for us, but our sin nature is constantly with the Holy Spirit. And Samuel declared that the sanctification of the Spirit is an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit that directs us to be God's plan. We can shut our ears to God's plan. We can have sin in our lives, we can have uh, whatever agendas in our lives, but we can be more important than we think that that is the plan for us. surprised by those things. The Armenian uh, deal there in, in Turkey, he was not surprised by that when basically a million Armenians were, were killed just overnight just because they were, um, no, they were the same color. They were a different set. So even the worst sinners that have ever lived will have no chance of derailing God's plan or his work. 
or his word. So in God's plan, he provides everything in grace for man from salvation until eternity. So his three-phase plan goes something like this. You accept Christ, you're saved. Then you live your lifetime as a believer, seeking to follow him in obedience, right? Taking up your cross daily to follow him. And then you die in eternity, you exist with him. That's the plan. And then all the other things that are going on in the universe that he's got his finger on from Halley's Comet to the tiniest little quark or whatever the thing is that's smaller than an atom is now, the God particle that they talk about, he, he's got all that in his plan as well. But for you, he has a plan. And you need to fit into his plan. So his grace is the key provision that accomplishes this plan. It says grace to you. I want to be in God's grace. We have a certain amount of grace that falls on us just in the fact that we are alive and take breaths. There's, there's grace involved in that. The fact that you can walk, the fact that you can see. And even those that can't walk or can't see, there's a certain amount of grace on them that God bestows in just all of creation. He gives us more than we deserve. He give, we don't deserve anything, and yet he gives us everything. He provides our, our food in season and the harvest, the rain in time, and so on. His grace is the key provision that accomplishes his plan. Isaiah 30, verse 18. I don't know if we got all those put on the deal there. Isaiah 30, verse 18. It says, Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. And therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait upon him. The Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you as fallen or sinful or backwards or belligerent or arrogant or rebellious or whatever it is that you are, the Lord will wait. He's very long-suffering. He's much more long-suffering than we are as earthly fathers with our children. We, we see our kids not doing this or that. We think they should have done already. Can't believe they haven't got it done already. And we're just, it's not that we're, uh, I don't know, I don't want to put myself on spot there. I don't really believe it's that I'm unmerciful. It's that I'm impatient. I want to see them do. I want to see them accomplish and gain and, and build and develop and do these positive things. And in the, in the kids' mind, they're like, man, I'm doing it in my time. I got all the time in the world, you know. You know, you get, you get closer to 60, you're like, I'm running out of time. You know, when you're 18, you're like, I got all kind of time, you know. Um, but the Lord is long-suffering. He's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. The reason Christ, I'm going to speak out of turn right here. The reason Christ has not returned is that there's some left to be saved. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. It wasn't so, I tell you. I'm going to go build many mansions, many rooms. In my father's house, there's many mansions. I'm going there, and I'm going to prepare these places for you. Who's the for you? It's for you. And for all of those yous out there, too. And there's more of those yous out there that still need to be saved, that still have a place in heaven oriented for them, situated, prepared for them, but they've yet to accomplish the part, they've yet to receive the salvation that will allow them the key to open the door to the room that Christ has made for them, specifically for them, developed. Think about um, a person that would come in like a, uh, like a designer, uh, uh, what do they call it, interior designer, and they would come and they would talk to you first, oh, what's your favorite color, what do you like, you know, well, I like, you know, uh, like if Hope was here, she loves, uh, you know, she's 17 years old, but she loves unicorns. She loves, you know, those like pinks and, you know, hearts and all that stuff. If her house was designed, I promise you, everything would be fuzzy and there'd be lots of unicorns and hearts in there. It would be super, super fluffy in there. Everything would be really soft and that's what she would want. And the Lord knows that about Hope much more than I. And it would have horses, unicorns, and it would be all oriented to hope because he goes to prepare a place that touches the desires of her heart, the thing that she really is in her person, in her personality, in her most, most intimate part that she is, how she thinks intimately, in, interior to herself. And he understands that. He's going to prepare a place that's special, that's oriented for you. And it's a part of this inheritance that we're going to look at. And it's the fact that he's long-suffering. He's long-suffering that he may be gracious to you. I can't, I know it sounds like I'm overemphasizing this, but the graciousness of God draws men to himself. If God gave us exactly what we deserve, 
it would be so the days of school today are different from the days when I went to school. So I had this this one teacher lady, Miss Lewis, nice lady. Um, but she had the rod of correction that was never far from her hand, and she was not afraid to use it. And I got a little uh, thing in her class one time, and she just started stroking me on the head with this like pretty long ruler, and it was kind of thick. And she was just worked me over, worked me over out into the hallway, took me down to the principal's office. I got some licks down there. And then they took me back to the room, back to the hallway, to Miss Lewis's room. And she gave me a couple more stripes with that thing. And then she said, you know I'm doing this because I love you, baby. I'm like, stop loving me so much. You're killing me, you know. And I was all worked over by Miss Lewis and I staggered back in there, you know. She was a good lady. But um, anyway, she didn't have the patience that God has. But in God's graciousness, we got to grasp that he doesn't give us what we deserve. He doesn't stroke us. Every time we make the smallest error, I was listening to old Paul Washer, and he's not, he's not like the most compassionate guy ever if you listen to his preaching. And he talks about being, you know, what it is to be saved and so on. But he said a lot of people have this view of Christ, and maybe wrong, and maybe, anyway, at some point we all seem like we go through this phase. And he said we have this view of Christ that when we go before him, when we die and we're standing before him, he's going to like have a scowl on his face and like... All right, you made it, but barely. He goes, and that's, not, and that's not who he is. At the moment of death, well, let's start here. At the moment of new life, it says, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So, so as parents, we're really bad to remember, to remind our kids of the failures of the old things. Well, you remember the time you did X and so and their kid can never stand up under that because he's like, I remember that because you keep reminding me. Christ is not this way. The grace of God says that with sin, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But in the forgiveness, he tells us in another place that he doesn't just forgive, but he forgets our sin. And in our fallen human state, the best we can do is forgive, but we can't forget. I remember what you said about me, Linda. I will never forgive you. <laughs> no, I'll forgive you, but I will never forget. No, the Lord's not that way. He forgives, and he forgets. I'll cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. And if you see that, it's this picture here. You can all, if you go east, you can never come back around to the west. You always go east. You never come back west. So it just keeps getting further and further apart. And that's the way God deals with sin. It's the picture of the scapegoat. When he puts the hand on the, on the goat and puts the goat in the wilderness, and it just goes. They lead it far away, so it just keeps going away. And that's the game. If the goat comes back, then you've not been forgiven. But, uh, man, his graciousness, he's gracious towards you. And therefore, it says, he will be exalted. I can praise the Lord more freely knowing that he has forgiven my sin and cleansed me from all unrighteousness. And then I sin again. And then I confess my sin. And he's faithful and just to forgive me my sin. And then I sin again. And then I confess my sin. And it's this ongoing process of sanctification, purifying as I recognize the sinfulness, he's gracious. And when I recognize his graciousness, I begin to exalt him for his goodness, for his glory, and all the things that he's provided. And I don't think we do that enough. Peter, encouraging them here, is reminding them. So let's go to verse 3 here. First uh, Peter 3, uh, 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What it means, that word blessed is a different word than we think of um, uh, blessed be the peacemakers in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's a different word. That's the blessing like we consider like a bestowed gift on you. You do something nice, and I want to bless you in return. You know, um, This blessing is the word for praise. It's a different word. This is the word for praise. So you can put the word Praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise to him. Um, like I was talking this morning about BJ, that's, her, that's how she starts her, her prayers. Praise you, Father. God does not praise men for the works of their hands. Men are to praise God for the works of his hand. The best man can do is take the things that God invented, that God created, 
and kind of move it around and reorient it and, and make it into something else. Um, we take God's gifts that he's given to us, we reorient into the thing that we want that suits us, and then we ask God to honor it and bless it. Like when you're a kid and the dad brings you a box of Legos and you go put something together and he goes, oh, nice job, son. <laughs> like, you didn't make the Legos. You didn't make the picture that's on the box. You didn't have the money to buy the Legos. You didn't even have the car or the whatever to go get the Legos or even know where the store is at. And then when you make this little thing out of the Legos, you're, you, you expect your parents to tell you, what a great job you did, honey. You're like, you didn't do anything. You just took the thing that was already done. All of it was done for you. They even gave you a picture and you made it into the thing and you expect praise for it. And God is not that way. And he shouldn't be. God is, is greater than that. He raises his son, King Jesus Messiah, from the dead. He creates all the gold, diamond, silver, iron, ore, copper, ore, plastics, oils, everything that we exist on. He brings the rain in season, the sun in season. He produces the crops. We say, well, at least I planted a seed. Yeah, well, he made the seed. Go make the seed, and then, and then I'll be impressed. You go make the seed out of nothing, everything. And then that's, that's how the Bible begins in the beginning. Out of nothing, everything. Start right there. Out of nothing, make a baby. Produce the first man out of nothing. Produce the dirt that your first man has created, then I'll be impressed. We just take his creation and we reshape it into the things that we desire and then we think we're doing something. I want to show you something in Job. I didn't put it up there, I don't believe. It's in Job 27 and 28, but it says of men. We take the precious things of the earth and we create them into things in, in Job uh, uh, 27. Uh, the Job's, or uh, actually, this is, um, I don't know, one of Job's not so friendly friends says, I'll teach you about the hand of God. What is with the Almighty, I will not conceal. Surely all of you have seen it. This is 27, 11, 12. Surely all of you have seen it. Why then do you behave with such complete nonsense? Go on down to verse uh, uh, 15. It says, Those who survive him shall be buried in death. Their widows shall, shall not weep. Though he heaps up silver like dust, uh, this is talking about a man, any man, and piles up clothing like clay. He may pile it up, but the just will wear it. The innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth, like a booth which the watchman makes. And then go on to verse twenty or chapter 28, verse 1 through 3. It says, Surely there's a mine for silver in a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches every recess for ore in the darkness and the shadow of, the, of death. He breaks open a shaft away from people in places forgotten by feet. Um, he, so the picture is, there's a man. He spends his life figuring out ways to use the creation of God for his own purposes. It's not wrong. God tells us to take dominion over the whole earth. But there's a man, and he comes up with a way to take light into darkness so that he can mine below the ground. He puts an end to darkness and searches every recess for ore. So way back here in the time of Job. So Job is at or before the time of Abraham, oldest written book in the Bible that we know of, um, unless it was carried over and given to Moses, where Moses writes about the creation. Very old book. And already man was going and digging the ore and digging the gold and digging the silver. And what happens? He puts his hand to the flint, verse 9. He overturns the mountains at the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. And what is hidden, verse 11, he brings to light. And this man, he puts all this stuff together, all these jewels and all this stuff. And you know what happens? Is in, I saw an Israel, uh, on this Israel news thing that they had just found this big uh, gold piece of jewelry and it had a big jewel on it. So this man dug the gold from the earth. He refines it. He makes it a thing. He finds the, the, the diamond or whatever. He puts it in the jewelry. And before long, that gold's right back in the earth for another man to find because man's life is so short and so finite. And yet the man who made the jewelry on that day, he thought he really had something. And then the man who refound the jewel ever how many years later, he thought he had something. And the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's all his. Man is finite. He comes and goes. But there is a God who rules and reigns forever, and he is gracious and long 
suffering towards those who put their faith in him. And so it's a wild deal. God does not praise men nor the works of their hands. You might see a son rarely praise his father, but many times it's the father who praises his son. He's so good, or Jimmy's case in basketball. You know, hey, good job, Grace, good job, JJ, or whatever. Um, but it's pretty rare to see it go the other way around. As people, we're so, whatever we are, broken, that we don't honor our fathers in the accomplishments that they've done, the fact that they... You know, in my case, the fact that my dad brought me to church as a kid and I was able to hear the gospel and be saved. For any of his flaws, at least he brought me to church and I was, and I was able to be saved by, by him taking me there. Or whatever, whatever food they provided. We should honor our fathers better than we do. Um, anyhow, thinking about that, that, that it is for us, grace and peace be multiplied. I'm back in Peter now, I'm sorry. Back in Peter, verse 3. Grace and peace, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we should give him praise. We should be prompted to give him praise in everything that we do every day by the works of our hand. We should remember the Lego story. He's provided all the stuff, including the picture on how to make it. We need to give him praise instead of seeking praise from him. Who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. Well, we saw this word begotten the other day again, and uh, the other day, and we saw that in the Psalms, it was in relation to Christ being begotten, the only begotten Son of the Father, the King Messiah. And when we saw the word there, the word begotten meant something different than it means here. That word meant coronated, like a king receiving his crown, or a prince receiving his crown and taking his kingdom over, to be anointed to receive the crown. That's the word begotten there. But here... It's to be born. And if you see the word after that, it says, begotten us again. So you must be born again. We must be born from above. It's the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, taking a walking dead man and rejuvenating him and making him to walk in newness of life. It says how it's done through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's the thing that I picked up on that. And like I said, like I started, we, we don't have a clear understanding of heaven. We don't have a clear, we just have what the Bible tells us. You can watch those movies, you know, where the kid goes and sees heaven or whatever. And maybe, maybe there's truth in that. Maybe it's a, uh, outside of life experience, what do you call it? after death experience or whatever, near death experience. I don't know. But the only thing that I can 100% rely on that I know to be true is God's word. And so I got to look at heaven as he describes heaven. And we'll talk about that in the future. But from what I understand of heaven, I know it's true because the Bible tells me it's true because there's people that have been there, John in particular, Isaiah in particular, Daniel in particular, and they wrote specific details about what it was like on the other side of life, in death. And then they came back and they gave us analysis and descriptions of it. But something better than that is because Jesus was raised to walk again, but you know, he wasn't the first person or personality that was ever raised to walk that was dead. Uh, Elijah raised a boy from the dead. Is that not true? Um, the graves were opened in the day of Christ when the veil was torn. It says the graves were opened. And many people came out of the graves and walked around and presented the gospel, the fact that Jesus was dead, but he's alive today. So uh, there's at least, there's a couple, or Lazarus, Jesus and Lazarus. He calls, Lazarus is dead ever how many days in the grave. He said, don't call him out now, Lord, he's going to stink. He's been dead for days. Lazarus, come out. And he calls him by name. Because if he doesn't call him by name, the whole hee-haw gang, whatever was in the grave, they're all coming out. So he calls Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. That's before you eat whippersnappers day. Remember the whole hee-haw gang? All you old codgers and myself. Uh-huh. Yeah. But, <laughs> but Lazarus was raised to walk again. And we're promised that we will be raised to walk again. The only thing that you have, the truth of the scriptures, which says that God the Father in his plan raised men to walk again that they could testify 
that the Lord has the power over life and death. And you have it in your hand. And you need to rely on this and recognize that this right here tells us that you can have, by his abundant mercy, begotten us, raised us to life again to a living hope. And the hope comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, you'll be raised from the dead. There will be a judgment on that day, but as believers in Christ, the worst that can happen to you is you could be limited on the total number of crowns that you were to receive. But as far as being separated from eternal death, you'll be free like you've never been free before, and you'll walk like you've never walked before, and you'll breathe and expend energy like you've never expended energy before, and it will be fantastic. And to add to that encouragement, um, verse 4, not only will you be raised again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, but you will receive an inheritance. I say will receive. You have received, if you're a believer today, you have already received an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, that does not fade away. But where is it? Reserved in heaven for you. Some aspects... It's, it's kind of, it's really difficult, and I'm just telling you guys because there's some young people in here, but I'm telling you, I remind you again, if you, we, you can't hardly relate to the suffering of Christians throughout the world if you haven't been to other countries. But you go to Peru and you watch people live in, in dirt houses no bigger than this platform right here and have four, five, six people, maybe a mattress, maybe not, cooking on the floor, on a dirt floor, uh, it's a dirt wall, a bamboo roof, drips on the inside, there's guinea pigs running on the floor, there's very limited food, eating one time a day, and you find the joy that those people have, and they recognize that their hope is not in this earth, but it's in the future. And we have trouble seeing it now, we have trouble accepting this future hope, because we're holding on so tight to this earth, because it's what we know. So to imagine going, uh, I was telling Mark, to imagine going to Africa, um, like our summer is their winter. So right now is their warm and their rainy season. But when I talk about warm, I'm talking about turn the oven on 350 and stick your head in it warm. It's roasting. And there's no, there's no air conditioning. There's no relief at night. There's no fan because electricity never works. And there's plenty of mosquitoes. That's the only fan you get is the little mosquito wings blowing on you when they're chewing on you. But those people have the same hope as we have. Quit trying to hold on to the things of earth and begin to grasp for this living hope, begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. Um, Peter starts his great evangelism conference in Acts 2.24 talking about the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. If you go to Acts 2.24... He talks about Christ. All these people had witnessed that. The, the, um, all the people that were there had witnessed this crucifixion of Christ. They knew what he was talking about. Men of Israel, verse 22, Acts 2, verse 22, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man uh, attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, you know, you saw him. Don't even try and act like you didn't see it. You saw it. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. There's that word again, God's plan, not to be thwarted. You have taken by lawless hands, you have, and crucified and put to death. But you, that's the least you, that's the best you could do was put him to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Go to verse. Uh, 38 and 39. These people, when they heard it in verse 37, when they heard this, so just so you know, you're as guilty as these people are, if that makes you feel any better. But verse 37, well, let's start in 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, master, the word Lord, Senor in Spanish, it's more than sir. It's more than, you know, Lord of the Flies. It's more than king. It is the boss. 
the boss of bosses, and Christ Messiah is the word. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the brethren, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Here's the, here's the key, verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. The commitment, commencement of the inheritance of Christ begins right here for us today. The first place it begins is when you're cut to the heart, recognizing that you had a part in putting Christ on the cross because you're a sinful person. And because of your sinfulness, he had to die for your sin just like he had to die for my sin. And in the death of the sin, he was, in the, in, in the death on the cross, he put to death sin. He received all of the wrath of all time from God the Father on himself that you could live. He took the punishment due you so that you might live. And your response to, be, to that is first recognizing that it's you who put him there. Second is the question, what can I do to be saved? And then the answer, repent. Turn from the life of before and begin to follow him. And then it says, be baptized. That's the outward sign of an inward change. And then the third part is being gladly receiving of the word and continuing, verse 42, continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and in prayers. The walking in sanctification of the believer. Repent. So the commencement of the inheritance is the resurrection of Christ. And then all men who will accept him, committing themselves to him in faith, that is the down payment. They receive the down payment, which is the reward of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The proof of the inheritance is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. The conviction of spirit that changes when you know the stuff that you used to do and, and not really feel any regard for one way or another, and now you do, that's the Holy Spirit speaking. That's the change in conscience. And I will tell you that you can suppress the conscious, conscience by com continuing in sinful behavior that you know is wrong. And eventually the Holy Spirit will be quenched to the point that he'll no longer be able to be heard. But know that Christ is, a Christ is and is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. His reward is that he indwells us with the Holy Spirit. He gives his spirit to us that we can know the right way to walk. So like we've seen in the past, the inheritance of the believer is, for the most part, it says, a future one reserved in heaven for you. Back to 1 Peter. Um. So some of the inheritance is present tense, like the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's an a, a awakening to wisdom that you didn't have before that allowed you to increase in wealth or health or knowledge or availability to, to do good works or, or whatever. Some of that's part of the inheritance. But the main inheritance is a future one. And the reason I can tell you this, the reason I know that some, like a lot of the teachings of, of Benny Hinn and people like that are wrong is because they tout this thing that if you get saved, everything's going to go your way and everything's going to be happy and you're going to have all kinds of money, Cash Luna and, and baby Cash, Cashita is his son. Uh, um, you're, like, you're like, how can these guys, these guys are going and talking to these people that live in just total poverty and tell them, well, if you give me your last $5, I promise you'll gain some reward from God and you'll, and you'll be living big after that. And it's not true. Because the, some of the greatest Christians I know live in the worst poverty that you've ever seen. It's not true. You're not guaranteed gold, silver, and precious stones on this side of death. But what you are guaranteed is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that will help you to develop you in sanctification, preparing you for eternal life with the Father in heaven. That's what you gain. And so you say, well, um, what kind of what net value are we talking about on this inheritance? You know, I mean, what am I giving up? Is it worth what I'm going to miss out here on earth? I mean, if I, if I, if I take this, if I take this agreement right here, an incorruptible and undefiled inheritance reserved in heaven, that means it's in the future. It's like if you've got a rich daddy now, I pray you do. I hope he's super rich. I hope he's like Jimmy, just rolling in it. 
And it, it, but the thing is, Jimmy doesn't give you his cash now. In order for you to get the cash, JJ, from Jimmy, he's got to die. Would you rather have him alive or dead? Don't, don't answer that. No. No, no. I know. I know you love Jimmy. And I'm going to tell you, you guys that are looking for a cut, it's pretty slim over there at the Jimmy house. <laughs> but the point is, is that in order for the inheritance to come, you've got to pass. The person, the testator gives to the testate E only after death. You got to die to get the inheritance. But I'm telling you that the inheritance is worth it. Colossians 3.24, I don't know if we got that on there. Do we have that one? Yeah. To an inherit. oh, no, that's the wrong one. Come on, I was about ready to. You're going to like this one. Colossians. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Is it on there? Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive a reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. Knowing that from the Lord, so that's a promise, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. You're going to get it. Look at Ephesians uh, 3, verse 20. It says of this reward that it's greater than we can ask. And the word is think in your Bibles for the most part. But it, it's like, imagine, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think, in general, that word would be better translated, imagine. You can't even imagine the reward that comes according to the power that works in us. You can't imagine the reward that comes in the future. It's not a temporal reward. If it's temporal, it'd be like the guy that wins the lottery and he wins $10 million, and then a year later he's broke. Because that's what we do with temporal things. They're temporal because they don't last. They're temporary. That's where we get the word temporary. They're just a, a short period of time. So some of the financial blessings in this life, abundant life or health, health maybe, are they're good and they may be a part of the inheritance, but I know great godly people that are, I mean, I know one lady that's sick unto death. She's not going to make, I mean, she'll be lucky to make it six more months. And she's a good godly woman. But this isn't the inheritance. It isn't on this side. It's eternal. It's held in a place that moth and rust cannot destroy. I was thinking about that. They were talking about this knife that was in uh, Tutankhamun's tomb. And the blade was made of this kind of steel that could have only come from a meteorite. It had a certain amount of cobalt in it or something. And the value of the knife is in the maybe multiple millions, probably $100 million. It's ridiculous because there's only one. And the knife is, there's actually testimony. They found some tables and stuff from, it was given to Tutankhamun's great-great-grandfather or something and passed down. They said they didn't even really think that they had the ability to forge metal in that day, but we know they did because of the book of Job and the book of Genesis where it talks about him being a metal worker within a very few generations of Adam. But that aside, but it was a super valuable knife. And it, and it was made from a meteor. The steel came from a meteor. And they're like trying to figure out how they forged this, this steel with a gold hilt. And it's worth millions and millions of dollars. But where was it? It was back in the ground. And they dug it out of a dead man's box. Everything here is going back in the dirt. So the inheritance that we've got to be looking for is in the future and it's in the heavenlies. And here's what it'll be. The first is that temporal, both temporal and eternal blessing of being of the royal priesthood. The fact that you're a joint heir with Christ. You, you don't see yourself as royalty maybe, but you should. Even if other people don't recognize it, Christ was the most high God walking around in the flesh and people mocked and scoffed him. He didn't have to tell them that he was the prince of peace. It didn't make him less the prince of peace. He was. He is. And same with you. You're of the royal priesthood, a royal man, a royal woman of God. And the royal priesthood, that means you live in the royal kingdom. You have a kingdom. The kingdom is here on earth, but in such a small thing we have trouble seeing it. But the kingdom of heaven is coming. It's here, but it's in a depressed way because of the fallenness of men and the wickedness of men and so on. But the kingdom of heaven we exist in now is royal priests and priestesses. Uh... We're reborn citizens of heaven. We gain eternal life. We gain eternal happiness. 
joy inexpressible and full of glory. We gain uh, peace with God. We reread in Psalms this morning that the wicked are at enmity with God. They're enemies of God. He has no place for the wicked. God has no place for the wicked. Neither liars, nor fornicators, nor homosexuals, nor effeminate, blah, 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 shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But we read in Corinthians that, and such were some of you. You're the same thing, but you got access because you're the elect. You were saved, and therefore you gain an inheritance, an eternal inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away. I read this. This is terrible. This guy got an, an, a better inheritance than I did. I told you about my 52 Hudson Hornet, the rust bomb with four flat tires, and they said, here's your inheritance. Oh, thanks. Um, doesn't run, by the way. Anyway, uh, what a great inheritance. Th this guy received a house. It was like a, this is supposedly a true story. He got like a um, uh, North South Carolina, those, uh, those, those, uh, oh, those real big mansions like in Forrest Gump. can't remember what those are called, but those big mansions in... Uh, in huh like a plantation big plantation home big fields and everything and um, he received it as an inheritance and the day that he received the inheritance they went out there and it had because of the way it changed hands they dropped the insurance on it, it caught on fire and burned to the ground so, so he never got the house that is not this kind of inheritance I know of another inheritance. I mean, how many times have you heard of an inheritance where there's multiple people fighting over control of the inheritance? You know, the father leaves it to four, five, six kids, and then they, they fight it out and divvy it up, and before long there's nothing for any. It's not like that. This inheritance is a complete inheritance equivalent to all that Christ possesses, all authority under heaven has, and on earth has been given unto me. It's all his. And he says that you can be joint heirs with Christ. That means that you're entitled to everything he's entitled to. And he's generous, like a father with a two-year-old. He's willing to give you everything he has. He's going to, yeah, go ahead, play with the toy. Enjoy it. He's going to let you use it. And there's no limit to the authority that he has or the possessions that he has of gold, silver, and precious stones. And when the streets are made of gold, I, I'd say having a piece of gold would be like having a, a Snickers bar. You can take it or leave it, you know? And now it's important to us. So needless to say, yes, the inheritance is worth it. Hang in there. Be faithful to the end. It's incorruptible and it's undefilable. And it's not, uh, it will not fade away. In fact, it's gaining in value. It's a, it's a savings account that's gaining in value every day as we lived. In verse 5, so to an inheritance, so blessed be the God and Father, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, giving us this inheritance incorruptible, verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And here's what I want you to, to hope with today. And I've been seeing this in Psalms as we keep reading through the Psalms. How personal David understands and knows God, how personal it is to him. He's my God. He's our God. He's your God. When you're praying, he's my God. Just personalizing that. In order for it to be personal, you really got to know. And I wonder how many of us could testify to the fact that the Father in heaven is our God, separate from any other God. You say, well, I don't have any other gods that I know of. Yes, you do. And, uh, you just don't want to admit what they are. It could be sports, it could be your phone, it could be your clothing or how you look or a number of things that you place at a higher importance, a higher thought status in your mind that before you think of God the Father, you have to think of this thing first. It could be your children, it could be your spouse. But if you get this thing in proportion right where you have God the Father and His Son Christ as the highest authority, the highest keeper of your soul, the highest of your salvation, you keep that in that place, then everything else is going to fall into place. There's a place for those things. But we struggle with that as people to maintain the correct position of the things of earth. If the, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It, we, we struggle to maintain our eyes on Christ. We struggle to maintain our eyes on the Father and to maintain him as our God, our King, 
our Father, our Savior, our Lord, our Master, and our Messiah. There's no other guarantees in life. No person can guarantee you happiness. No future husband or wife can guarantee that they'll stay with you, as much as I hate to say that, or that they'll live till you die. You Everybody wants to die first and let the other person go through the suffering. There's no guarantee that a person or a thing will last until you die and will be able to provide you the happiness and joy that you can gain from knowledge of the Father and being kept by Him and the power of His might into salvation for you. So the main thing that you must have is God's power to keep you in salvation until that day, the day of your death, and then for eternity after that. And with that, you'll have great grace and peace given to you. You'll live under his grace and you'll abide in peace as you go about your daily life. We got a song. Uh, so let's just, uh, we got a song to play there. And I, I want you to consider those things. First of all, that is it true that the Father God is your personal God above everything created, natural, mechanical, or whatever? And if he's not, well, then let's get that reoriented today. Let's get that rededicated part going. And if you don't know him at all, then today may be the day of your salvation. I pray that he is. Pray together or just listen to this, and then we'll, we'll pray together. Consider that.